0: Thanks everybody. Good morning. First of all, I'm not, I'm not used to the cold weather, you know. (laughs) In fact, the coat I brought is very, very wimpy, so (laughs) it's good to be inside and we don't, we don't have snow in San Francisco, huh? It's kind of strange. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's, it is a bittersweet scenario for me. Um, I think the only way I can describe my feelings with Paul is to sort of back you up and tell you what it was like for me when I joined the faculty. i know, hear you. Oh, you, you have I to I do that? Yeah. OK. <laughs> and um, when I first came to Seattle, I mean, just try to think about it. When you start your career, you're um, I guess the best way to describe it is you're out of control. You're you're so full of confidence that you think you can take anything on in the world, and uh, that's exactly what happened. I, I finished my training. I went to Sick Kids, did a fellowship there, and came back to work and to build a, an academic program, to get NIH funding and stuff like that, and. So I started one of my first rotations. Of course, was at our children's hospital, and fortunately, I didn't realize it then, but it was fortunate that Paul was there because um, you know I guess a, a good analogy. It's like a puppy. When you buy a puppy, you just can't control them. You know, I, I wanted to do I wanted to do everything and anything, and Paul was the voice of reason. And so, one of the first times I got into trouble was when I decided because we were doing this at Sick Kids that for the Mala seals who came in with strider and had a carry two malformation I would do a decompression and that was sort of in vogue back then and I did that and boy I got called down to the director's office uh, Ron Lamire and and This is this was a famous phrase. He said you're going to do what? <laughs> you know and every time I Said yeah, this is something that we're starting to do. I you know wh- why commit these children to a ventilator status many of them are not going to get through that process Let's try to do something different and it was you're going to do what you're I mean? so they actually did a focused practice review on me within my first six months i mean it was demoralizing um but i've always been a risk taker so i i didn't really give a damn i i just said i'm gonna do this and and paul kept saying just stay the course stay the course and we did that and we did a whole bunch of other really cool innovative things and because of his Uh, calm nature, and because of the fact that he was trained as a pediatrician, uh, I had a little bit of gravitas there, and I could get away with it. And so, it'll be interesting as you see this talk, which really is about the field of glioma surgery, whether you do children or adults, which I do, um, it's really, I think, the subtitle is, you're going to do what? Because for Most of my career I've done things that just were never done before. I just figured, you know, it wasn't working. We weren't, it wasn't as if we were curing patients with brain tumors, so let's do something different. And um, now I can say, you know, 33 years later, it was probably the right thing to do. So taking risk is is part of my DNA, and I think the same with Paul. So I would say, Paul, Although I've never said this to you before, that if it wasn't for your cool, calm, collective behavior and attitude, I, I'm not sure I would have made it. Then. I'm not sure I would have gotten through. So um, I, I'm very, very grateful to you, because otherwise it, it could have been a real problem doing whatever. So, uh, and, and Paul's had a great career. He's... he's. Uh, he taught me a lot of other things, you know, about how to take care of uh, parents. You know, I really wasn't very well versed in that, but just the whole way he would go about it and the demeanor and the, the way he uh, took care of kids and parents was, for me, it was eye-opening. You know, I was, my experience was really in the Canadian system of being a fellow and it was there. It was kind of like a... You come in, you do a case, you get ready for the next case. There was just, there wasn't, uh, we just didn't have a lot of contact. But, uh, you know, I learned, I learned from somebody I respect tremendously who's had a great career. And um, all I can say is you're very fortunate to have had Paul come your way for these years and to, um, you know, build a service here. And now he's passing it on to wonderful colleagues, and uh, it's, it's a major force in pediatric neurosurgery throughout the country, it's known that way. So whether you know it or not, it's a, it's a great program, and it all started with Paul, and I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I was part of Paul's men- mentorship, if you will, although he mentored me quite a bit. So it's great to be here, uh, he's asked me to come for a long time. and. There's always been some reason, and so now I'm I'm thrilled to be here, and what a great occasion, although, as I said, it is bittersweet. But I'm going to, so I thought what I would do is kind of tell you a story. Let's just leave it like that. I'm going to tell you a story about things that I started doing. But in order to get to that point of showing you some of the high-risk stuff that I did and how it sort of paid off, uh, in this field, um, I, I need to first walk you through the field as it exists now because I think in any situation like this where you're doing things very aggressively, especially in a surgical point of view, the question always comes up, is it worth doing? Are you making a difference? Is there a change in the outcome of these patients? And. I want to start with that first, but before I do that, I, I want to just make sure we're all on the same page here because this is, I'm sure, for some of you, you don't deal with this disease um, as frequently as, as you may think as, it, as we go through this lecture. And this is um, the new world order, if you will. It's the WHO classification. And to make a very, very long story short, we don't use histology much anymore. We've transformed towards the molecular classification. So, for example, now an oligodendroglial tumor, we used to call an oligodendroglioma, is really an IDH mutated 1P19Q co deleted TERT promoter mutated tumor. Now, it, the funny thing about it is when you go to clinic, the patients will say to you, what's the IDH status, or am I co-deleted, you know? So it's not that unusual that we have to talk in this language, you know, because it's, um, it's something that the patients, their families, they understand. And we have to work in this world. So uh, this just introduces you to the topic, at least on the low-grade side. And this is what histologically it, look lo- it looks like. So in the middle, You see the classic oligodendroglioma that has the signature co deletion. Everything starts from some sort of a progenitor cell or a stem cell, we think, in which it incurs the IDH mutation. That's the trunk mutation for which, when you add all these other somatic events or somatic alterations, you then begin to see these tumors go down different pathways. And of course, On the right side, you see the high-grade tumors. That's classically defined as the IDH wild-type, the glioblastoma, and in pediatrics, of course, we see these histone mutations, which define the category we see mostly in children, which are the midline high-grade tumors. We don't see as many hemisphere lesions as we do in adults. So um, I mentioned the fact that there are genetic alterations that occur, and I'm not going to, this is not going to be a molecular biology talk, I'm just going to show you this so as we move forward you'll understand what we're dealing with. But on the low-grade side now, we have three basic categories based upon the building block of the IDH mutation and then whether there's a co deletion, whether there's a P53 mutation, ATRX loss, which is typical of the classic low-grade glioma. And then, of course, on the the pediatric side, we have uh, fewer IDH mutations and we have more BRAF mutations. So because we have more of these low-grade tumors that have the BRAF mutation, they really turn into a potentially different therapeutic category. So it is clearly a different disease, both at the high-grade and the low-grade level. Several years ago, we wrote an article um, and put this in the New England Journal from our group in which we said, this is getting kind of complicated. Let's look at all of the mutations out there and see if we can um, come up with a very short list that divides patients who histologically look the same. So what I mean by that, and then we had a validation set from the Mayo Clinic, but what I mean from that is, On the low-grade side, you can take a tumor that under the microscope looks the same histologically, but you can break it down into all these different categories based upon IDH co-deletion status and the tert promoter mutation. And even in the high-grade side, not every glioblastoma is the same. They all have this tert promoter mutation, but some of them have variations on the theme with other somatic alterations which tell us that the tumor is going to behave better or worse. So as part of the idea of being aggressive with these things surgically, we have to first start with the molecular classification. We have to understand that because we're now trying to understand whether or not the molecular classification. And I hate to use this word, but i use it anyway. Whether the molecular classification trumps the <laughs> other. It's a bridge term. It's a bridge term. Uh, so, is that more important than extended resection? And so, in the molecular error, if we knew that, um, is that more important? Does that tell us when to biopsy versus perhaps do a more extensive resection? The, the long and the short answer to that is that it doesn't trump the extent of resection, if you will. It's still, extent of resection is still very, very important regardless of molecular status, and I'll show you some of that data. Okay, so years ago when I was coming up in the field and we were being taught or told by many of our colleagues in oncology, neurology, don't operate on these patients because one, you're gonna hurt them, and two, you're not going to really make a difference. I said, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to get aggressive with these lesions. So I started off on this pathway and this was actually the first paper out of the blocks as I had over 15 years of accumulated experience showing for the first time that at least in the young adult and the adult side, if I could do a complete resection radiographically, I could get a 10-year survival. Now, not all of those patients had 10-year progression-free survival, but the reality is if I wanted to get a patient out 10 years, um, I had to do an aggressive resection. So I, I kind of knew that to begin with, but there wasn't enough data. There was only five-year survival data, and this was the first study that did a 10-year survival data in the statistics. Supported that conclusion. And then um, the world started looking at this very, very differently. And the, there was a big French consortium which was developed so that every patient, uh, whether they were an adolescent, whether they were a young adult, or an, an older adult who had a low grade glioma, they were all put into a registry. And the bottom line is that if they got a complete resection, they wound up on the top survival curve, which is where you want to put patients. So, and their overall 10 year survival was very similar to ours, even though this wasn't on a volumetrically based study. <coughs> but they confirmed what our suspicion was that extent of resection is really important. We don't have. Um, I would say we don't have a lot of randomized, controlled, prospective studies on extensive resection in neurooncology. In fact, we have very, very few. And this is actually the only one, there are two, but this is one I wanted to show you um, that came out of Norway, and it was very, very interesting how it evolved, and that is that the surgeons there decided in this very socialized healthcare system That if you lived in the southern postal codes of Norway you could get a resection of your tumor. They convinced the government of this. If you lived in the northern postal codes you could only get a biopsy and that's the way it went on for years and years and they proved that for those patients in the lower right-hand corner who got those early resections? That they did significantly better than the patient who got a biopsy, and they waited for the inevitable for the tumor to grow. And this, I'll just in a minute, I'll tell you what this means. But one of the really important um, conclusions from that study was that they showed in the group that waited those patients had a two-fold increase in malignant transformation. So this was the first study that actually highlighted the fact that you could change the natural history of the disease if you were aggressive with the tumor early on. And then they did a follow-up study, which now goes out about 15 years, and they showed once again that on the upper curves, those are the patients that had that resection, and those patients have done very well um, over time, and it stood the test of time, even out 15 years. So extent of resection is very important for low-grade tumors. This is the other study that was done, it came out of Germany, it was a randomized prospective study showing pretty clearly that resection early on is better than biopsy. So. I don't want to belabor the point, but this was a, a meta-analysis I did with some of my colleagues at Penn State and other neurooncologists from around the world. I think, and our goal here was to look at different types of mortality and morbidity of gross total versus subtotal resection, and we showed very, very nicely that if you want to get out 10 years, the only way you're going to do it is to have an aggressive resection at the onset. Now, of course, all of this is very important in in the sense of morbidity, and I'll come to this, that's the second part of this talk, is how did we get around the morbidity issue? How did we take the risk out? Um, I put this in because this was a really fascinating study as I was getting this talk, uh, together, I was going back through the literature and saw this meta-analysis, which showed that in all of these studies, including the study we had published, that if patients had less than a gross total resection, their odds ratio of dying earlier was significantly greater. Again, proving now, in this day and age, now, as I can say, toward the end of my career, there's no question. I train all of our surgical neurooncologists that they have to do an extensive resection. Of course, they have to do it safely, and we'll talk about that, but extensive resection is critical. There's some, there's some evidence now that, and I don't know, it really hasn't filtered down to the pediatric realm, but at least for young adults, there's some evidence now that if you could go beyond the tumor and get potentially the brain that's infiltrated safely to be removed, that you're decreasing the risk of malignant transformation. And at least in their population of patients with now over 10 years of follow-up, they had no patient who transformed to a higher grade. So if that is truly the case, and only time will tell, then we have to have a paradigm shift in neuro-oncology at both the pediatric and the adult level and we have to go beyond the tumor what we see on the scan. We have to get extensive, what we call a super total resection if we can do that safely. (coughs) Um, It's not important to look at the numbers here. Just focus in on the differences in the curves, but this is the emerging data that's now showing that regardless of molecular status, whether you're co-deleted on the top left, whether you have no co-deletion on the top right, whether it's a low-grade tumor with an IDH wild-type genotype, on the bottom panel, all of those patients do better if they have a more aggressive resection to begin with. So again, the molecular status does not outweigh the benefit of aggressive resection. Um, And this is uh, from the European group because the Europeans have always been very nihilistic about surgery for low-grade tumors at all levels, at all ages, and now they started to show in their population of patients, again, regardless of the IDH mutational status, which as I mentioned is the trunk mutation, really important, the extent of resection always improve survival regardless of whether they're mutated or wild type and this just shows that the survival curves continue to benefit uh, all the way down to the point of leaving even 30 cubic centimeters so doing a great resection is a really good thing and you can really split those curves but if you get in the middle of that case and you realize you can't take out all of the tumor, but you can get 60 or 70% out, it still makes a huge difference down towards the lower end here. The other problem we struggle with, both you know, at the pediatric side and the young adult side, is uh, seizures. Of course, most, 95% of these people come to us because they've had seizures. So we put together a study years ago where I looked at all of the cases I had operated on at different age groups with patients who presented with a seizure and the most important fundamental factor in taking a patient who had seizures, who continued to have seizures, to a free uh, to a seizure-free condition was to do a gross total resection of the tumor. So when I started my career, when Paul and I started working together, we would take these patients into the OR, we would do these extensive corticography mapping procedures, and the bottom line is it didn't make a difference. We didn't know that early on, but now we know that really what you gotta do is get the tumor out. That's the key thing. And I'll tell you, in the pediatric realm, especially in the adolescents, I struggle with this problem more than anything because most of those patients are refractory because they've been seizing for a long period of time before they even had a diagnosis. So it becomes a problem. But again, looking at meta-analysis, this just shows you the risk ratio of getting into a seizure control condition if you do a gross total resection. So the literature is clear now. The key is get the tumor out. Well, what about the high-grade tumors? And again, before I go into this part that I think you'll be more interested in about surgical methodology, Uh, Let me just review this very, very briefly. And to show you that, the world for us kind of changed when um, this article came out in 2001 showing that we could make a difference for our patients with glioblastoma or high-grade anaplastic tumors if we could do an aggressive resection, but it had to be 98%. Well, again, that didn't make any sense to me Um, because I was seeing benefit to patients even when I got over 70%. So I did my own extent of resection um, study, looking at what's the threshold for when you make a difference, and we showed very nicely that we could shift those survival curves even when we didn't do a 98% resection, but we were getting much over 78% or 75%. So again, the point is, if you could take it all out, great. But unlike that study in 2001, where we were told, if you can't take it all out, just do a biopsy. No, that was wrong. The right answer was, go to the operating room, take out as much as you can, as safely as you can. And we're seeing this now, I think, in the era of the lec- with um, immunotherapy, where we're starting to see some indication that extent of disease at the point of treatment really is influencing the outcome. Um, so, again, just to show you that it's not just one study or two studies, there are meta-analyses that have been done showing once again that gross total resection favors a reduced risk of death even out two years. So when I started my training, we were told to do a biopsy. Halfway through my training, we started to see differences in outcome at one year. Now. Toward the end, we're seeing a significant change at two years in our patients, where the two year overall survival of getting a complete resection is a heck of a lot better than doing anything less. But if you can't get a complete resection, be aggressive and get out as much tumor as possible. And now we're going down this pathway, as I'll show you, not on this slide, but on the next few slides that if you can take the tumor out, but like the low-grade story, you can go further out into the margin and get rid of the infiltrating disease. You see the median survival over here continues to increase as you take out disease past the contrast enhancement on the MRI scan because that's where all the disease is, infiltrating into those margins. And the other thing is re is very, very important for us, and just to make a very long story short here, I'll just tell you that reoperation is really important for this disease at all ages. As long as we're not seeing diffuse disseminated disease or disease across the midline through the corpus callosum, surgery at progression is still making a significant impact on these patients. And this was from a large study that was done out of France as well. The higher grade tumors are different You know, as I said, they have the tert promoter mutation, but they have a lot of other genetic alterations, such as in EGFR, P53, CDKN2A. These are all primarily pathways that involve RB, PI3 kinase pathway, and P53. Those are the main players in the high-grade arena. Again, all based on an IDH wild-type background. But it's very, very complicated, and there are lots of different profiles that have been put out there in the literature, including the TCGA, and actually I was saying last night that one of the TCGA leaders is not too far from you in the Jackson Labs, Raul Hawk. He's a wonderful basic scientist who I would strongly encourage we get you folks together and start working with them, and we'll do that. But he was the author of this TCGA study as well. So there are a lot of different ways to look at this disease now. It's getting much more complex, and it explains to us in the field why we haven't done very well with targeted therapies. Because there are so many different pathways that you can block one, and then there's escape through the others. So it's been somewhat of a disappointing field. This is a a study, again, trying to begin to answer the question, does molecular status mean that if we knew that beforehand, we wouldn't do an aggressive operation? The answer is no. And what these survival curves show is that if you look at both progression-free survival and overall survival, you can see a difference, for example, in the methylated group, whether they have a complete or incomplete resection. So the completely resected methylated MGMT promoter methylated patients do better with the temodar and the radiation. And, you know, you can say the same thing in the setting when they're unmethylated. So even when they're not methylated and the temodar, the Temazolomide doesn't work as well, those patients do better if you can take out more tumor. So, again, the molecular status doesn't influence how we deal with it. So, you know, for me, um, I'm trying to sift my way through all of this molecular information to understand how do I take this back to the clinic and how do I counsel patients prior to surgery? So we have a study that this week, as it turns out, is being submitted to the New England Journal. It's, I think it's a, I don't know whether they'll take it or not, but it's a, It's a very novel way of looking at risk for extent of resection at all ages, basically. But I would tell you, you know, most of this involves um, the 18-year-old population and greater. But it looks at different portions of this population of glioblastoma with different molecular characteristics such as IDH, MGMT, promoter methylation, and what it shows, to make, a, again, a very, very long story short, is if you look at all comers that get radiation and temodar, the ones that do the best, that wind up on those upper curves are those patients that have the least amount of contrast-enhancing disease on the scan. And if you factor in the IDH status, Again, the patients on that top curve there up in B, these patients do the best when they have not only a complete removal of the enhancing tissue, but like the study I showed you before, they have very, very little flare or T2 abnormality left over. In other words, what you're doing is you're going beyond the enhancement and you're taking out tissue at risk for recurrence. And that makes a difference, but you know, again, the issue is can you do that safely? So now we have data that's showing a 36-month survival in glioblastoma if they're MGMT-methylated and if we can do an aggressive resection to begin with. Okay, so the, the critical point of all of this is to get to this stage in, a, in the next... 15, 20 minutes, I'm just gonna run you through some of this stuff that we've been doing all these years. And obviously, there are a lot of different therapeutic options now, I'm not gonna get into that. But the most important thing is, for us as surgeons, is the evolution of surgery. We've made a lot of progress. We have a lot of very interesting tools that we use. But even in the present day, you know, as we think about more minimally invasive procedures, it's turning out that we still have to do. Whether you do it through a small incision or a small opening, you still have to do very aggressive resections using intraoperative navigation, using intraoperative imaging, if you want. But mostly, it's about functional mapping. And this was a study we published in Nature Reviews um, a little bit over a year ago, showing, again, the take-home message is that (coughs) the ultimate goal has now got to be aggressive extended resection. So we've come back to this issue of what is the best approach for our patients, and we now know it is to be aggressive with the surgical part, no matter where you look at this in the literature, because in order to do this, you have to pay attention to function, because what good is it if you do a big operation and the patient's hemiplegic or they can't speak? So... I'm gonna touch on this, but this is just a collage to show you that, you know, I was glad to hear that Paul the other day did an awake operation. This is 95% of my cases are now done awake. Um, The youngest patient I've ever done awake is 10. And I'll show you a couple examples of two young children that we did awake and they do very, very well with that. And the reason why we do this is because we did a study showing that if we thought when we go into the clinic that a patient can't be operated on um, in the sense because they have quote eloquent tissue that you're going to remove but you just made that based on an assumption then that's not as good for the patient in terms of their overall survival than if you took them into the operating room said I don't know where their function is I'm going to find this out, I'm going to do this awake, I'm going to test them and then you operate on them at that point you can do a more aggressive resection and the outcomes were clearly different so this showed me how important functional mapping was and going back to the days when Paul and I were in Seattle we worked with George Ogerman who was a epilepsy surgeon who did both children and adults and We did this study, and it was the largest study ever done about the organization of human language in the brain. We had done pediatric studies. The the information is basically the same. And what this slide shows you is that if you test a site, say here in the temporal lobe, the likelihood of finding language when you do this testing is greatest right around the bottom of the frontal lobe, bottom of the parietal lobe, and the top of the temporal lobe. So this is what we call the perry sylvian network of language. And we learned a lot from this study, and again, to make a long story short, what I learned earlier in my career is that language is highly variable. There are no two people in this room today who have the same localization for language, and guess what? It gets a lot more complicated if you're bilingual. And I live in a state where most people are bi and trilingual and depending on when you learn that second language, you can have different areas for the same function of whether you say cat or whether you say it in Spanish or English or whatever. So it just language is variable and the only way to really understand that is to map it. And this was a study in which I recently published where I took every Every time I did an operation, I saved the point with navigation, and I developed these probability maps of function. And we showed very nicely that even though you might expect speech arrest to be in an area we call Broca's region, you can see it in all these other areas too. There's a great deal of variability in localization. Naming sites, if you show a patient a picture of a dog and you stimulate the brain and they can't say the word dog, you know that that's a functional site that has to be preserved. And many of those sites tend to be in Wernicke's area, but many many people have a great deal of variability of localization. So this study just proved that language was variable and that we needed to aggressively map it. And that turned into a paper that I wrote that took me three years to get into the New England Journal. Three, not two. But I persisted like, you know, Paul and I have done our whole careers. You fight for what you believe in. And it was, again, another paradigm shift showing that you could do very small exposures and get negative language maps and say, yeah, I can go to the bank on that. I can rely on that. It's negative information. Now I'm going to go in and take that out. And that's what we call negative Language mapping. Used to be we had to do these big exposures, expose the whole hemisphere and find one positive site to believe all the negative sites. Now we do small exposures, get negative maps and say, yeah, you can rely on that information. And that's what that told us because there are many sites. The numbers aren't important, but it just shows in the perisylvian networks, again, that a lot of negative sites exist. I didn't understand why and I'm going to show you why that exists. It has to do with plasticity. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But when I when I uh, resected tumors based upon negative mapping, my morbidity rates, and I think this is what got this in the New England Journal, my morbidity rates were very low. So in other words, if I take a patient in the operating room, and I don't find language and I take that area out because it has a tumor, the likelihood of having a permanent deficit is less than 2% that's that's good it's not perfect but it's pretty darn good. Now all of these patients when they start off they have really good language scores on all these six batteries but two to three days after surgery they look terrible they stop talking the parents are angry the patients are confused they said, I thought you told me I was gonna be okay. And I always say before surgery when we had this meeting, just hang in there, things are not gonna look good because one month later, things are gonna look a lot better. So as long as I know that I'm taking a site out that doesn't have language in it, no matter how bad a patient looks due to swelling, they're gonna look better. And um, this, is, this, I'm not gonna take you through this, it's about a minute video, but it, It just kind of shows you what the awake operate. For those of you who've never been to the operating room, you may just get a kick out of this because, um, you know, this is the way it is. patients are awake, they're comfortable, and they're doing stuff for us while we're mapping them. And then we put these little numbers down on the surface and we find out. Which one is important for movement? What's important for sensation? What's important for vision? What's important for naming? What's important for reading? All those kind of things. That's what we call brain mapping. And uh, that's what I've spent my career, first in Washington and then at UCSF. And I've I've operated on about 1,200 patients, children and adults, who have been awake to do this kind of work. And Along the way, I've found a lot of reasons why I shouldn't do this because you know it would cause seizures or because patients were very, very young and we had to think about doing it with grids. But the reality is, as time went on, you know I found a lot of solutions to those problems, and it's the age-old scenarios when you're dealing with a a situation in medicine where you're not quite sure if that's right or wrong, you have to work through it and determine, in the long run, whether that's the right way to do it. So these were all solutions that I had published that we use in the field today, and the technique that we use is what we call the asleep-awake-asleep. So the patient comes in the room, we put him to sleep, we then open everything up, we wake them up. They're totally awake like you saw that patient on the video. We do the mapping, then we do the removal with them asleep or awake. And this is just a little animation which shows how we do this, where we show them, we have them count, we show them um, pictures of things and they tell us what it is. And you know, slowly, and it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to create a map and then to operate based on that. And the technique has involved, I mean, I remember the days where we only had lidocaine, and that was the problem. So then in those situations, we had to put the kids to sleep, intubate them, and then take the chance of extubating them in the pins and wake them up and do that. That was not very good. Now we have great medications with dexmedetomidine, propofol that we can use that get us through that part of the procedure. And as I said, we use now very small exposures, focused mapping procedures. The other thing that occurred to me as time went on, even in the very young patients, is that we had to change the anesthesia up to 40% of the time before we even made a skin incision. So, when you walk into the room and you see a, a really young person, especially the adolescents, who get very disinhibited on propofol you have to stop the drug, you have to put them on a different medication, and you have to just eventually work it out until you have the right anesthetic mix. But the technique is reliable, the likelihood of stimulation-induced seizures is still very, very low, so we don't have a problem with that. And again, with, in my experience, the risk of a late deficit still is around 2%. So I feel comfortable with that approach, it's worked out very well, And in fact, when we did a meta-analysis looking at the benefit of using brain mapping to remove tumors, we showed that with stimulation mapping, you could reduce the neurological risk by 50%. So it's really become the standard of care for both pediatrics and adults in terms of functional mapping to do resections. It gets kind of complicated, and for me, this is another part that became very interested is that it's not just we're looking at the surface anatomy, but we're also looking at these deep pathways as we're doing the resection, we're going through the tumor to have to do this kind of a mapping. So with the patients awake, while we're down in these white matter pathways, we're testing them. We're trying to find areas that cause semantic paraphages, phonological paraphages, all the things that we need to know to prevent injury to those areas. And this is kinda how it looks. So in one hand I'm removing the tumor, in the other hand I'm stimulating, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth, until I start to see some changes in the patient, then we know to stop at that point. And we have all sorts of tests now that we've developed where we can show patients these tests, we can ask ask them to define differences in, for example, this test, which is picture word interference, where we're looking at the likelihood of saying two things that belong in the same category as two things that don't belong in the same category. Or we can ask them, what are you saying here? I see the boy dancing with the girl. All of these things can define different pathways in the brain for language function. So we've gotten very, very sophisticated and now we can take this into any area um, where we want to operate and do the patients awake, and whether it's in the frontal lobe or in the temporal lobe, in the parietal lobe or the insula, it really doesn't matter. We can go anywhere now, even down in the brainstem, to remove these tumors and map their functional areas. And this is basically what we're trying to do: is we're trying to get somebody who's intact and take them out and become basically get out of surgery and be intact and not have a deficit. I'm going to just mention a few other things that I've learned along the way here, other benefits of awake mapping. So one example, and this is a a young fellow I operated on uh, just about a year ago who had a very, I mean, for us as neurosurgeons, this is a complicated tumor. He's intact. He just had a seizure. So how am I going to get this thing out without causing a problem? Well, I'm going to do him awake. And I was telling Paul last night, I don't hesitate to have the parents in the room when I do these cases. You know, that might sound a little odd. But we have sessions where we talk about what we're going to do. They never see the opening. They never see a drop of blood. They're on the other side of that drape and they get the kids through the procedure. So you do whatever you have to do to get in there, map the brain, and preserve function. And I've never had one circumstance in my 33 years where the parent or the relative has said, or the kid has said, I can't do this anymore. In fact, the 10-year-old that I ran on kept a journal and reported it at school and told all his friends about how he was the first one on his block to have weight brain surgery. <laughs> now, it, I mean, it sounds weird, but you know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get them in and out of surgery, to do a procedure where you're taking bits and pieces of tumor off the middle cerebral branches and you're getting them in and out without a deficit. In the insula, I mentioned, this, this is a very complicated area, um, and we see children who have these insular-based tumors and we've come up with, different strategies where we split the different fissures to go down to the tumor or we do transcortical procedures to get through the tumor. And we develop surgical classification systems um, that never existed before that tell us what the likelihood of being able to resect the tumor based on where it's located in the insula. And I won't drill down on that, but I just wanted to show you this because it's been this has been an area when I started neurosurgery that I felt very, very uncomfortable working in. And now at the end of my career, I've kind of had the opportunity to write the book on it and I didn't always succeed. It was a tough slog for a while, but we came up with the strategies of when you go transcortical versus when you go transylvian, how you work between these vessels and make these little windows and work your way into spaces that are no bigger than three or four millimeters to remove these tumors and to do it safely. Um, And I can now go to clinic and predict the extent of resection based upon where the tumor is located. So, for example, this is a 14-year-old young man that I did who has a tumor in the back of the insula as well as the inferior parietal lobe. And this is what I call a zone 2 tumor. So I said to the family beforehand, based upon this classification scheme, I could tell them how, because they all say the same thing, how much are you going to be able to get out? And I told them that I thought I could get out somewhere between 85 and 90% of that tumor. And we did him awake. He did fine. He had a relative in the room. And we got through that. That's what the map looks like with the patient awake, and we found areas in the parietal lobe that had negative mapping. In fact, the only site that was positive was this area, which is the sensory system. Everything else was fine. So, where's this language? I don't know where it is, but it, I don't really care, it's not where I want to remove. <laughs> That's the key. So, we took that out, and actually it got better than an 85% resection, so that worked out very, very nicely. And then I just want to end with this this one point on reorganization, because I think it affects us quite nicely, both in the pediatric realm and the adult realm. And it was based on the fact that one of the fellows that I mentored early in my career, Hugh Defoe, who went back to France and does all this awake surgery in France, said to me that he thinks that there was a lot of plasticity in the young brain. I said, well, how young? We had written a paper early in my career where we showed that in uh, children who we had operated on who had language localization that we could define through grids before the age of four, that if we resected those areas, they could completely rewire. And even though their deficits were significant early on, they would regain language function. Sort of thought that the cutoff point was about four or five years of age. Um, but I realized now that that's very different. So, because, as I said, I'm getting older now and I have a chance to reoperate on a number of my patients, I went back and looked at all of the cases I had reoperated on. So, for example, in this case here, I showed in that one area stimulation induced arrest of speech, naming deficits. But when I went back 32 months later, up over here, I didn't find that area, so I did the operation, I took the picture, I did the resection, and basically what I was able to show that there was uh, loss of function in 40% of the circumstances. So this is just another example of, I think, using this technique to allow you to do things you never thought you could do, and I'm going to stop at this stage, but I think the point of this whole thing is that we've gone from a very nihilistic approach of not being aggressive surgically, to saying let's take a risk, let's do things, let's be radical and let's change the outcome of both children and adults with these tumors. And I'm happy to say it, it definitely made a difference. So thanks very much again, Paul. Good luck, sail into the sunset.